Welcome to the Age Group to Pro Triathlon Podcast. My name is Brian. I'm the Age Grouper. And I'm Kaylee, the Pro. Our mission is to help people go from confused to confident in their first few triathlons. Let's dive into today's episode. So we are so excited to be back. I know it's been a little bit of a a wild hiatus in several weeks, but um, we're excited to be back to the podcast and on a brand new date. Um, We are going to start coming out more consistently on Fridays instead of Wednesdays going forward. We're back. Yeah, we are. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say that we're we're sorry that we took a few weeks. We kind of just had the race, which then led into my grandmother, unfortunately, passed away. So we had to do some family travels. And right after that, we went to Arizona for a training camp where we don't have the equipment to kind of do the podcast on the road. So we knew that week was going to be off. And then the red eye home kind of just threw us all schedule. So we've kind of been all over the place, getting the house cleaned and just kind of getting back into a rhythm. But yeah, we are back. Yeah, it was a lot of foreseen and unforeseen things. And sadly, we just don't have the technology to travel and produce and record the podcast to the quality that we'd want to do it. So thanks for your patience. Thanks for all the questions and sticking with us. It was great to see so many encouraging messages come through saying, Hey, when's the podcast coming back? And we're really excited to hear the next episode. So today we have a good one prepared for you. Honestly, a lot's happened and a lot's going to happen for this summer of triathlon. We're going to cover a quick race recap of Chattanooga 70.3 from Kaylee's perspective, the goods, the bads, the uglies and what to improve. Then we'll cover from there some of the highlights of the training camp. And then also what's on deck for the rest of the summer. So let's dive in. You want to start with Chattanooga? Yeah, we'll start with that. And I will say, if you hear our cat in the background, she's a little grumpy this morning. So that is her meowing. Maybe one day we'll have her on the pod, but We'll never have her on the pod. They can't (laughs) see her. For the video, if you're watching on YouTube, we do have this on YouTube and you might could see her, but... All right, good YouTube shout out. Just had to throw that in. <laughs> yes. Toss us a subscribe on YouTube. So let's start with Chattanooga. Yeah. I mean, it's feels so long ago now, but that's kind of where we left off. So yeah. So I'll, I'll ask a few questions about it. One, what this is the sec. it was like the second time in like three weeks that you were on the starting line with Paula Finley. Yeah, that's actually right? true. I, for, I forget that um, right before that was St. Anthony's and we had the same <laughs> Sorry, you guys, she is scratching down our door. (laughs) But yeah, so she, um, yeah, we've raced twice, uh, St. Anthony's and now Chattanooga, which has been really cool to be able to spend some in-person time with her and um, just getting to know her even more uh, has been really great. So is is that intimidating to be online with like someone you look up to in a triathlon legend or is it just fun? I have to say that... It probably would be even more intimidating if we if I wasn't on the TTL Devo team because I feel like with that I I know her a little more than just as, you know, top five in the world triathlete. Um, so I think I'm actually just more excited when when I see her name on the list. Cool. So we'll start with the um pre-race. How how did you feel going into Chattanooga? Um I think that I was pretty nervous. I, I'm one of those people that get 
terrible pre-race nerves. I mean, you, for anyone would know how nervous I get. And I think that for a while I was like pushing off the nerves, doing good. And then I don't know, maybe three days leading into it. I was just like, I don't know if I want to do this. My stomach was just in knots and, um, yeah, I was just like super nervous. And I mean, it was my first professional 70.3. So I think also just doing the longer distance because before that I did an Olympic distance and then kind of a modified shorter, um, race. So I think that was also just like the pain of a 70.3 was also making me pretty nervous, but I was able to shake it. I think going into, you know, walking up to, to the swim start and kind of was able to settle down and then was getting ready for the swim, which I got to actually have a, uh, an open water swim uh, practice before, which I'm not used to. Uh, so that kind of also helped. So going into the swim, what was the thing that was modified about the swim that you didn't expect or know about? Oh yeah. I guess that was honestly super crazy. I was standing with all of the other professional women, women before the, the swim start. And somebody was like, Oh yeah, the 1.4 mile swim. And this entire time I, I just like did not connect that 1.4 miles is longer than the normal 1.2 miles. And that 0.2 is, I mean, that's a long, a good bit of extra distance, which they kind of say it helps account for the, the strength, the, the current of the river. But I think the main reason they do it is actually for logistics. They have a start from a dock, um, like a boat dock, and then they have an area where there are stairs to be able to get out of the river which just happens to be 1.4 miles apart versus the 1.2. Yeah. And I think a lot of newer 70.3 athletes go to Chattanooga thinking it's a downriver swim, not realizing that it is a little longer. And there's probably other better 70.3s to start with that are also downriver, but not extended. So that's just a a fun fact that we didn't know about until you got there. Yeah. So. I mean, not even got there. Like I was about to go get in the water when I realized that this was actually going to be a long swim. And it, not, it takes and the not same short. amount of time. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, pretty slow. I, and I, I didn't personally feel the current. I, I didn't think that it's not like you felt like you were flying. You're like not you lightwater kinda, rafting. You won't yeah. feel a current in a downriver swim. And it maybe, just makes your time and maybe it's worse sometimes. Like I know like sometimes the currents is you stronger. You wouldn't, but yeah, I didn't feel it. So, okay. So how'd the swim go? The swim went, I would say, okay. I think that for how my mind was set going into it, it actually probably went the way I expected it to go. I, my main goal was to be more aggressive off of the, the start and to try to stay with uh, some feet and where's my last race? I just didn't do that at all. I almost like waited for them to go and then started. So this time I was more aggressive, put myself in the mix, uh, stayed on feet for, I would say about two of like the giant yellow buoys that they have set up on the course, uh, which is not that long, but longer than my last race. Uh, but then the feet just kind of slowly, the bubbles faded away in the distance and I was back all alone and, I mean, at this point, I'm I'm kind of used to being in the back of the swim, which, I mean, at least 
it's less chaotic. I mean, there's only, that's probably the only perk to it. It's definitely slow and lonely. And then especially just getting onto the bike alone is, is never fun, but yeah, I would say going forward, my goal is to like finally stay in the backpack because I think I am a strong enough swimmer to be there with them. I just, I don't know, I guess lack the experience and the confidence in, in open water swimming. Matt McElroy says front pack swimming is a mindset, not just a skill. So some of it's just believing in yourself to stick with them because when you fell off, you weren't, you said you weren't even necessarily gassed. You just went to your pool form versus your open water form. And that's when they, they got away after that second. Yeah. So it's just having the confidence to hold your hand to the fire a little bit, I think. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, they were about what, 90 seconds in front of me. I, I can't remember now, but I mean, they're so close that just a cut, like a second per hundred or two seconds per hundred, which I know that I can do would put me in the mix. So I just, that's kind of my main goal at my next race is I'm pretty much only thinking about the swim and then the bike and the run will come after. So. Plus if you stick with them, the pace always slows down. It's always like a yeah. fast 300 into a settle. So it's, it's the get out speed. That's always going to be the hardest part. But once those girls settle, you absolutely have the aerobic capacity to swim on their feet. Yeah. So, okay. Out of T1, why don't you talk about how the first transition went? Because on paper, it showed you had one of the fastest transition times. But I think you would tell a different story or an expanded story there. Yeah. I mean, I was actually super duper surprised that my time was one of the fastest T1 transitions, which probably because it was, you know, you know how triathlon transitions are like you're starting in water and then oftentimes you have to run up a hill to get up to transition. So I think maybe even just that hill, I was able to kind of run fast up it. So then that went super smooth, got to my bike, grabbed it. This was the first time I started with my shoes on and I, so my shoes were already on the bike. All I had to do was throw my helmet on and go. So it seemed super clean. Everything was going smoothly, got past the line to get on the bike, which that's when your transition time actually stops. So anything that happens after that is a part of your bike time. And so when I got on the bike, my shoe fell off. I, <laughs> So I pedaled a little, saw that my shoe fell off, got off, turned around, stayed calm, grabbed my shoe. And then I ended up just putting them on there and then getting back on the bike and going. So did not, that part did not go smoothly at all, but I, I guess I'm happy that the first part of my transition went well, because I also am notorious to have slow transition. So I was, I was. At St. Anthony's, I had like the slowest T1. So I was like really trying to have a good, good T, T1 at this race. And I did until the bike actually started. Yeah. And I would say the highlight there was, and I was filming you at the time, just staying calm throughout, like your shoe fell off. And I think I've actually been racing where the same exact thing happened to the guy in front of me. And he tossed his hands up and he said, oh, my race is over. It's, it's done. And obviously that's not the case. Like it's a very long day out. So staying calm and not letting your parasympathetic nervous system overreact and build the adrenaline. You're sympathetic. 
your sympathetic yeah. nervous system <laughs> react and build the adrenaline and have all those negative chemicals come off is actually really important to going in to the bike. So the, the, the calm effort was really good. We're going to dive right into a user question here because this piggybacks onto exactly what one of our listeners, Emma, asked us. So Emma said, hey guys, loving the podcast. It's so relatable. I have a question about mounting and demounting your bike while leaving your shoes on the bike. So couldn't be at a better time. We did not script this and we don't know Emma yet. So thanks for this. Do you do this? <laughs> so I do and Kaylee tried. And if so, how did you teach yourself to do this? So I was thinking, why don't you start by explaining exactly what Ryan Bolton, our coach, told you as a rule of thumb going forward is with the shoes? Yeah. It, so again, because I had the slowest transition at St. Anthony's, we were like, oh, the glaring obvious issue was that I put my shoes on, run with my bike, with my bike shoes on, out of transition, and then hop on, which... Which is slow. Yeah, nobody else does that. and Not in the pro field. No. And so... He Except was, for Lionel Sanders. He wears his shoes? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that fast, so I... The goal was to be able to put my shoes and start with them on the bike. And so my coach had me basically never take my shoes off of the bike for training. So anytime I got on, my shoes were there. And every time I got off, I would leave them on. So my shoes and my bike were basically one for the past few weeks. And what what that means is they're clipped into the pedals at all times. So when Kaylee gets on the bike to start her outdoor ride... She puts her feet on top of the shoes and then straps in while rolling. And then the same thing for demounting, where she finishes her ride, she unstraps and puts her feet on top of them and then demounts the bike with her feet already out. So the shoes are always clipped into the bike until the, the race day travel comes up. So I thought as a starting point to learn how to do it, that's a forceful way to get comfortable getting in and out of your shoes yeah. while they're already clipped in. And this is without rubber bands. It's not like Kaylee's training with the rubber bands. So the rubber bands will actually make it a little easier on race day because it's going to hold them parallel to the ground. Yeah. And that was one thing I did not use rubber bands at the race because I thought I felt confident that I could do it without them because that's how I've been doing it in training. And I mean, the biggest problem was, is that I, I tried to manually put my shoes, like clip them in with my hands versus my like, you know, usually they're on your feet and you can clip them in. So I actually didn't get it to click all the way. So my shoe was not really clicked in. So as soon as it rolled forward and touched the ground, it just fell off. Like I'm going forward. What? No, nothing. Oh, you, he shook his head. <laughs> You're saying that that's something I should have done or. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to now put my feet in the shoes, clip them on, make sure they're on. And then I may also use rubber bands. It's something I haven't practiced. I think I might try some this week to see if it works or like where I would even attach them on my bike. So you can, you can clip them in with your hands. Just ask somebody else in transition to hold your bike upright 
and then put your hand in really good and make sure it clicks. It's just forceful. It's hard to do alone, but you can still do it with your hands. Yeah. I just couldn't that day. The the other thing is most, if not all, pedals have a tightness adjustment to them. So if you plan on racing with the shoes already starting on and then um, keeping the shoes on for T2, make sure that the the declip feature is as tight as it can be, which means it's holding that cleat in place. So it's really hard to rip your foot out because I, I said it in practice, it's really easy. But then on race day, you're shaky and nervous and you're rushing. So like when you go for that first pedal stroke, it knocks the shoe out sometimes. So that's what you don't want to happen. And you can tighten down the pedals themselves to hold the cleats in place. So that's really important come race day. Just from a safety perspective, I would feel bad if I didn't mention this. Practice getting your foot out of the tighter pedal setup because let's say you have to stop on a pinch in the race. You want to make sure you can actually get your foot out. Otherwise, you're just tipping over on the bike and falling. So yeah. And I, as, as always, don't try new things on race yeah, day. Make sure you always do it before. And I would also recommend that I started do, taking my feet out and getting off without my shoes and did that in races way before trying to start with it. So if you don't want to do this both in the first race, that's perfectly fine. Like I would even recommend just it's so much easier to unvelcro your shoes while you're on the bike, pull your foot out, put it on top, and then do the same with the other foot and then stop and get off that you might as well at your next race say, okay, that's what, that's where I'm going to start. Like that's, I'm going to just get off, leave my shoes on and then kind of work your way up to keeping them on for the mount, because there's no point in doing both and being nervous about your transitions, um, all at one race. So yeah. I mean, just practice. You can always do it on a stationary too. uh, practice, just like taking your foot out, putting them on, um, and then kind of move it to outside. And, and yeah, it's, it's kind of scary, but as soon as you get used to it and the hang of it, it's, it's, it's not that bad. Yeah. Perfect. So onto the bike for Chattanooga. How did you feel throughout the bike? Yeah. So getting on the bike, I was alone. There was kind of got out of transition. No one was there. So I kind of just locked in my, my race power, which was pretty comfortable, I guess, at the start. And I think now that I'm learning more, I think a lot of people typically push higher than their race power to start. And I'm the kind of person that looks at a number and I'm like, yep, that's it. And I, I lock in. And so the beginning of the race, my speed was actually looking pretty bad compared to the rest of the field. Uh, I know a lot of my friends and family that were spectating were worried and I just kind of, I mean, it was just me alone out there. So I, I just held a number race felt great. Um, it was a beautiful course. It was rolling pretty much the entire time, which really kept you engaged. Um, the road for majority of it was freshly paved, which I mean, is amazing to be able to bike on. And then once you kind of, the only bad road was pretty short. So it, it really wasn't that, that big of a deal. Eventually I caught one person and then started getting caught by the age group men. 
and kind of just got a little disengaged, uh, I would say probably around mile 20. And as these people were passing and passing, I was kind of like, you know, maybe you should actually try to work with, with a group if you're going to, I don't know, just like keep not like staying in the race. And eventually I kind of got on and was like, okay, try to push for a little bit. And so I would try to push for a little while. And then typically I would get dropped and then I would kind of just be back to where I was. And then as I kind of moved through the race, eventually I passed a few more girls and then got to one girl who I think was biking about the same power as me at that point, because at that point, my power was kind of staying the same and other people were dropping off. So I was able to work a little bit with her um, in the back, I would say like 40 to 45 miles. And then we get to this terrible train track and I get a flat. So it was my first flat in a race. It was my first flat I've ever had. So I didn't really know what to do. And was it on your wheel? It was on a borrowed disc wheel and it was tubeless. Is that what they're called? Mm -hmm. It was a, a tubeless disc wheel that we had borrowed. So I instantly felt like I was kind of biking in quicksand. Like that was the best way to describe it. I kind of was just pushing the same power, but was going so slow and eventually I started to hear like anytime I would hit a little bump, it would kind of cling. And I was like, okay, this is probably what a flat sounds like. Um, and even an age grouper came by and was like, Hey, you got a flat. So I, at this point I had like less than three miles, maybe three miles to get in. And I was like, if I stop, I mean, it's going to take so much time. So I ended up just biking it in very conservatively. I just, you know, did not get into arrow position and just kind of easy pedaled it in. And all the girls that I, the few girls I had passed ended up passing back, uh, which was a little discouraging because I felt like I'd worked really hard. Um, but I mean, ultimately I lost way less time biking it in than if I would have pulled over and waited to, to change a flat. So. Yeah. And you probably couldn't have changed you couldn't have stuck a tube in that tire. I yeah, don't think. that's true. I would have had yeah. no idea what to do. So with the tubeless setup, so it you can, but it's tough, and you've never done it. So your race day would have been over at that point. So yeah. So I, I mean, and afterwards, we obviously looked the wheel over, and I mean, everything seemed fine. And I mean, they I think even looked it over and said it was it was fine. So there was I, some air left in it, but just yeah. yeah. I, mean, I made the right decision, I think. And you have to be careful on a flat because it's mostly around turns and, and braking where you'll just fall if you're not really careful in terms of handling with it. So, uh, and of course, damaging the carbon. On this bike topic, we have a question from Kate. So I want to insert it here on, you know, the topic of working together in a bike group because this is a. Not a common misconception, but I, I would almost say the biggest issue age groupers deal with in the bike section of triathlon is how do you fairly do it? And unless you're racing PTO as a pro, there is a drafting component to some extent. 
that's why you were talking about, hey, if I get out with girls from the swim, that's going to elevate your bike and then therefore change change the dynamic of the race entirely. So Kate asked, just wanted to bring up that you mentioned riding in a pack and staying on somebody's wheel during your podcast on the St. Anthony Triathlon. I was just in a 70.3 that had lots of drafting involving some of the pros and top age group cyclists. Doesn't surprise me. And I believe St. Anthony's was not draft legal either. Correct. Are there different rules on that in the pro field? And the short answer is, generally speaking, no. There's a 12-meter draft rule in 70.3 racing. St. Anthony's has gone between uh, 10 and 12 meters. I, I think it was 12 meters on the day. I think it was 10. It was 10? Okay. 10, a 10 meters. So, 10? Yeah. So what you even think of in a 70.3, it was even less than that. Right. And explain the dotted line method yeah. for 12 meters. Um, so this is actually some really good advice my dad gave me. Um, he's an engineer, worked on building roads and stuff. So he, he told me 12 meters is basically... The distance from like the front end of a dotted line and the back end of the other one. On a highway, yeah. Yeah. So not the same same line, but like if you had two lines, if your cyclist is exiting the the line in front of you while you're hitting the that line, the second one, you're 12 meters. So it's actually like a really great way to monitor yourself while you're um, racing. And that's kind of how I do it which even with 12 meters, you will get a draft benefit. Like 12 meters is not enough that you, like it's not the same as a draft legal, like being right on someone's wheel is obviously the best, but 12 meters, you're still going to feel it. And even 20 meters, you will get a slight benefit. Depending on the direction of the wind. Yes. yes. The wind has a lot to do, but. Um, so, and just to provide this as one example, St. Anthony's was really windy. Matt Sharp was in the front of the bike. Um, and when he went past, I believe it was Eric. I think when he went past Eric, mm -hmm. Eric went from like 330 watts to 270 watts. He said this on his podcast. So there was no point in trying to push past Matt Sharp in a situation like that because that that watt difference is just insurmountable because that means to go faster than Matt Sharp, he would have to push even more than 330 yeah. watts. So to, to Kate's question first, yes, it's not draft legal, but there's a draft benefit to people take advantage of this. That's why having a strong swim is so important, even in a non-draft legal race. And when Kaylee's swim gets there, she'll be biking with a pack and getting some sort of benefit. Like if, if you watched Chattanooga 70.3, the girls were in a, except for Paula, the girls were in a really long line and working together to gap that, that next chase pack. So there's, there's a huge, and this happens in every single race. There's a huge benefit three for age groupers. The course gets so crowded Yeah, that you know, the, the self-accountability is the most important and it just comes down to cheating and ethics. Like if you get done the race and you had a really strong finish, but you were on somebody's wheel the whole time, like illegally, like within five meters and didn't really hold the bike power yourself, you know, are you really proud of that result? Because what are you doing it for? There's no prize money. 
So I would just say, especially on a one lap course, it's avoidable. Like Chattanooga's one lap, yeah. not two. It was one lap, so it, it didn't. It doesn't get pack crowded. up, yeah. So and and with the age group, it is like like Brian said, it's kind of something you just have to hold yourself accountable to. And I think the dash line is like a really, really good way to be able to monitor yourself because I know it can be hard to, to know exactly what 12 meters is. Um, so I just always make sure I'm using the dash lines on the road. And I will also say that as the, the top age groupers were coming by me, the males, they, um, there actually were a lot of motos monitoring them. I will say that they, I mean, they were, probably not caring about me because I was like basically in last place as the pros, but they, they were following the top males, um, and were, were monitoring and regulating them. And anytime a group of them came by, there was usually a moto on them, at least for the top men, the top. Yes. You're speaking is, about the top. Out yeah. Of I was just, racers. I was just saying like, yeah. I think that they do for the people who are truly competing for that first place. I think the motos are a little bit harsher on them. So the people who are doing it for themselves and just like to complete, you know, I think that it, it's hard to not draft and you just have to try to do your best. Um, so, yeah, I think that would probably be the biggest thing. And I guess also I was going to say the biggest thing between being in the pro field versus the age group field, especially coming from not being a good swimmer was when I was racing age group, the people I was swimming with were typically not as strong of cyclists and definitely not as strong of runners as what I was. So the entire bike ride was just me passing. So it was, it was never, I never had the opportunity to even really work with people because I was usually just going around them. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're in the pro field, oftentimes the groups you're getting out of the water with, like that's who you're, you know, your comparable bike skills. I mean, maybe not always, but it's definitely more common than in the age group race. So yeah, it, it's definitely hard. And I also understand that it's hard to regulate thousands of people. Um, so I think that it would just come down to having less numbers on multi-loop courses or trying to make sure the courses aren't multi-loop. And I know that can be hard too, but. Yeah, I would say Chattanooga can handle higher volume of, oh, yeah. of people, but pay attention to which Ironman you're signing up to, because if it's something tragic like Hamburg happening or, you know, where it's a really tight multi-loop course that gets congested, then just know what you're signing up for and it could be dangerous. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. So. While we're on the topic of biking, let's ask our final question of the day, just so we uh, yeah. enter, we, we wove these questions into our story, which is a, a fun way of doing it. Fiona asked and said, loving the podcast so far, I have a question about aero bars. What have you done to get comfortable in aero? I recently got a TT bike from a family friend. So it's a, it's a TT bike, which means it's not just clip on aero bars on a road bike. And I've been working to get more comfortable in aero though. I feel like I have no control and can't produce power would love your tips. That's like a really great question because 
getting into arrow position is not very comfortable. And I think that the number one advice I could give would be to get a fit because I recently, while at our training camp, got a new fit done and made some pretty, I would, I consider big adjustments and I feel a thousand times better on the bike. I like, and you already had a fit. Yeah. And I had a fit before that. And I've, I'm learning also that apparently your fit kind of changes. Like it's something that's good to adjust and like keep doing it. But again, that's expensive. It's very time consuming. So I know you can't always do that. Um, so if you can't schedule that in, you can also, if you have a trainer, um, that is a great way to be able to kind of get your own fit done by yourself. So I think having a friend would probably make it a little easier, but get, get on your bike on a trainer and kind of make adjustments, like move your handlebars out, move them in, saddle up, down, and kind of find like what is the most comfortable for you at this time because the most aero position you may not be able to comfortably sit in right now. The the fit of a TT bike, if if it is truly a TT bike, is so much more complex than a road bike. So a road bike is really just saddle height and then how many spacers do you want on your handlebars to be lower, more aero. It's it's not I mean, you still should get a fit, but it's not as tough as a TT bike. So first of all, if you got it from a friend, your friend might be might have a longer torso than you or might be taller or shorter than you. So the frame size, I would check on the manufacturer's website based on the frame size that you have. It might be a 52, it might be a 50. It might not be the right frame length for you if you just can't get comfortable. It might just be too big of a bike or too too small of a bike. I'm at the very limit of my cheap TT bike to to get comfortable in and it I had to extend the the handlebars themselves in order to get into the right position. So where there's like three variables on a road bike, there's like 20 different adjustments for a TT bike. So that's the first thing. Make sure you're within the parameters of the size of your bike frame. So the, the frame itself, if the website shows that you're within the parameters mm -hmm. from there, go on a stationary, use a mirror and then take a look, film yourself and, and see what looks off. If your knees are coming up too high, you might have the wrong crank length. Most people have, uh, you know, the crank length of the pedals that are just too long. I mean, you went down to from a 170 to a 155, right? Uh, I went from 165. So my TT bike that it came with 165, which... Which is typical. Yeah. And the crank length, if... I mean, this is something I'm still learning. I'm nowhere near an expert on bikes, but that is just how long your pedal... Like the, the, the metal piece that is like connecting your bike to where your foot is, that's how long that is. So if you can imagine a, a taller one, so at, with your knee up, your knee is going to be closer to your chest. Or hitting you in the chest or yeah. hitting your arrow bars. Yeah. And so a smaller crank length, which I went from 165 to 155, which I'm assuming is 
going to be 10 millimeter difference, mm -hmm. which is kind of a lot when you are making micro adjustments on bikes. So now my knee is 10 millimeters lower at the top of my stroke, which has really helped open up my chest. And I was having a lot of hip pain from the bike. And now that's just like completely gone on the bike. I have no hip pain. I still have some when I'm running, but um, it's slowly getting better because I, I truly believe it was stemming from my bike fit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that for me was a massive improvement. Yeah. And that's one of the big secrets, I would say, to a really good bike fit versus an average bike fit is they're thinking about details like that. And it's really tough to do on your own. And we haven't even gotten to seat position forward versus backwards and angle of your handlebars, but prioritize comfort first. Yeah. And then you can work on getting more arrow over time. But again, if you can't find it, if you try all these things and it's like, you know, just not working. That's why I'd start with the frame size because you might have the wrong size bike in the first place. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of pieces that they can add to a bike to make it fit you better. So I know like spacers and um, things that will like extend your handlebars out, which oftentimes you, that's one of those things that you do progressively over time. Like I started up higher because I just didn't have the flexibility or even the comfort or, or I don't know. I just didn't like being so far down so that it lifted it up. And now I've slowly like gone down and reached my arms out more over time. And even now the, the person that gave us our fit said, you need to order this piece. And then in about six to eight months, you're probably going to want to adjust again. So it is something that can evolve and change over time. Um, so and it will I, affect your power and it will affect your run legs off the bike. Yeah. Right. And I also would like to say that, unfortunately, your bike or your power that you can get on a road bike will probably never be the same as what you can put on a TT bike. As in it's higher on a road bike. Oh, yeah. Like your your road bike power is always going to be higher. I don't know exactly how many watts. I typically found that it was anywhere from like 10 to 20 watts different that I could I could do on a, a road bike versus my TT bike, um, especially in aero position. Like in aero, you just like will not have the same amount of power, but your aero. So oftentimes you actually go faster at lower watts. So Every time. Well, you go faster than what you were going on the bike. So on Every a road time. bike. Yeah. It's not yeah. even close. So, yeah, no, I, I, I figured we would ask those questions throughout that way. It was topical. It was on topic of yeah. what we were talking about in the first place. So getting off of your bike on the flat T2 to bring people back into it, going oh, on yeah. to the run. Yes. Tell us how your run went. How was the run course? How many people did you run down? Did yeah. you have the fastest run? Wherever you want to start. Yeah. So I guess getting off the bike, I think there were two other girls in transition when I got there. So I, um, you know, was able to to bike in some time down from my my swim and headed out and the run was pretty it was initially a long a pretty long uphill climb out of out of T2 
So I think I kind of like that because it almost forces me to monitor my speed getting off of the bike because it is easy to kind of just like run faster than you think you are um, with your with bike legs. And so I didn't even check my my speed at all going up the hill. Like I just ran completely based on how I felt and was like, okay, once you get to the top of the hill, that's when the race starts. So I got up, got out of the, um, I think I passed somebody even on that hill. And then after that, it was pretty, some pretty big rollers, uh, in the sun. So it, it did get a little hot, but they had a lot of aid stations up there. So you were able to just kind of throw some water on you, um, and stay cool. And then you got down back down to run along the river, which was completely shaded. Um, so I would say pretty pretty good, um, running temperature. I mean, it was probably in the sixties, seventies at that point. Seventies. Um, so, but you were able to stay cool and it was a lot of fun because I, I like when the core, it was a two loop course. And I like when the, the run course has multiple loops because it's just fun having a lot of people around. I like getting mixed in with all the age groupers. Um, cause a lot of people will cheer you on and it's, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun. You never feel lonely. Um, but then slowly didn't really pick too many people off after the, the first few and transition and ride out. Um, and then it wasn't until I think the second lap where you told me that I had several people I could chase down in like the last, I don't know, maybe two, three miles. So I, I kind of picked up my tempo a little bit and tried to stay on the pace, even though. I think I did have one pretty, like a, a pretty slow, slow mile in there. Um, but then I did end up picking people off within the last three miles. I think I went from like, I don't know, 25th, 27th, somewhere around there off the bike to uh, 19th by the end and um, had a pretty strong last three miles of the race, which I was pretty happy about. And I did actually end up having the the fastest run split of the day for all the professional women, which my fun fact is I've had the slowest swim, but I've had the fastest run for every professional race <laughs> I have done thus far. So um, that's a perfect segue into what's coming up next weekend, which is Montremblant <laughs> against who? Yeah, that's uh, Tamara Jewett's going to be there. The 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 goat of running right now in women's triathlon. So I'm really excited to finally stack myself up against her just to see. I mean, she probably, not probably, 100% has no idea that I exist and that my goal is to just see how, how well I can run compared to her. Um, she's someone I'm actually really excited to race against because I've always cheered for her and like really pulled for her because I think that I feel like I'm a little bit like her where I'm really working on my swim bike because I know my run is good right now and um, I just need to get the other two. So Yeah, so good summer of triathlon. You had Chattanooga. We had a training camp, which we'll talk about next episode just because we're out of time here today. Then you have Montremblant next weekend. And then yep. you're doing a back-to-back series of which two 70.3s? Yeah. So after Montreblanc, uh, which is like you said, next week in about a month after that is Oregon and Maine. 
I am planning on doing those back-to-back weekends. We will see how that goes. This will be the first time I've ever raced two weekends in a row. I think that I'm trying to make the most of my summer um, and with the time that I have off of school to be able to travel and go to these races and just get more experience. So I think it'll be a really great opportunity to to see what it feels like to to do two back-to-back. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, lots of races. So hopefully lots of recaps coming up. I have age group nationals a week after Kaylee's final 70.3. So that is August 5th, I believe. That's around the race time for age group nationals in the United States. So that will be a fun chance to test myself to see where I stack compared to last year. And you'll have a few races, right? Like that's a multiple races. Yeah, they do the open water swim event. Then they have the Olympic distance, which is like the main event. And then they'll do a sprint distance the next day. So I race them all. But the it's the same course in the same place as last year. And I think I was like top 50%. Like I was right in the middle. So it'll be cool to see my progress as to where I stack after a year of hard work. Yeah, maybe it won't be so cold. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was hot. It was humid and hot, but you're talking about Lake Michigan, the water temperature, right? Yeah, wasn't it cold? Yeah, it was 58 degrees. It was freezing, but that didn't bother me. I had a good swim. That's true. And and there will also be another big race (laughs) happening there, right? Oh, the PTO US Open? Yeah. I'm not racing in that. (laughs) No, but you'll, you know, a lot of the, the top athletes in the world will be there, which will be pretty cool. Maybe you'll bump into to Christian Blumenfeld. Yeah. I met Morgan Pearson last year, which was, he wasn't even racing. He was just there. So yeah, I'm sure I'll meet a lot of uh, the top pros in the world while I'm racing age group nationals. Yeah. But anyways, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us again after a few week hiatus. We're going to keep them going as long as we have the capability to. You can keep up with updates on Kaylee's Instagram stories. So if there is an announcement, a change and keep asking us questions there. Subscribe on YouTube. Thanks for the support, everybody. And we'll catch you soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening in.